You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello, this is a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling, and today I'm joined by Elizabeth Beacombe for a conversation on technology. Elizabeth, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I, my name is Elizabeth Beacom. I currently work as a director for security operations for an insurance organization here in the Lower Mainland. Um, I've been in working in IT for professionally for 18 years, um, done other work for family well before that. I've had a long history using technology. Got a bachelor's degree from Kwantlen Polytechnic back in 2010. So definitely been working and living within information technology for most of my life. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. And I mean, unlike most of our topics, well, most of our topics are fairly broad, but this one in particular is extremely broad. So I just want to preface this whole conversation by saying that we're not going to touch on every aspect of technology and its social impl implications, but we're going to talk about your experience working in IT and cybersecurity, and then we're going to just have a bit of a conversation around some of the things that are in the news these days and uh, maybe see what we all think about where technology is going to be moving forward, um, where it's been, where it's at now, basically anything. This conversation could go anywhere. But I wanted to start it off by giving our listeners a general understanding of what we're talking about. We try to start all of our podcasts this way. It's going to be tricky because it's such a broad topic. But in the context of this podcast and talking about social justice issues, um, what are some ways that you see technology impacting our society? Um, well, to begin with, I mean, you're definitely right that we can't talk about everything all at once. There's just way too much. It, it's uh, really the core of technology. It's become ubiquitous in our society. Every Everything is connected. Everybody is interconnected. Um, social media is playing a huge part of, of our society and has been for the last, you know, 12, 15 years. Like, mm -hmm. it's... Um, it's just growing exponentially. It's just growing exponentially. Um, so, yeah, in terms of, like, the, the impact technology is having to society, um, I believe that it's leading to a more um, inter interconnected society. Like, we're, we're far more able to reach out and have conversations with people that, you know, 30 years ago, we may not have been able to. Um, it also leads to issues on the, on maybe on a negative side in terms of these echo chambers where you, you find people or you seek out people that have common interests, but you don't seek out people that have maybe um, uh, opinions that are different, differ from your own. Right. So it maybe it reduces our ability to think critically because yeah. we're not getting that information. Yeah, absolutely. And it it's really dependent on each individual person to to get that sort of critical thought process going where they're able to take absorb that information from the technology that they're receiving whether it's through a podcast like this or through a website or a blog or any number of potential ways of of you know, receiving that information, but then thinking about it critically and then looking and doing your own sort of analysis as to how you are seeing that information, processing that information and looking to see what maybe information you're missing. Right. And and that's kind of a difficult prospect to put onto people because uh, a lot of folks, they just want comfort and it's not a comfortable experience to think critically and to get those differing opinions. In fact, it can be quite shocking at times, depending on what those opinions are. Um, but like you said, it's an important thing to consider. And one of 
my favorite expressions is seek discomfort. And it seems like it would apply in this type of scenario as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's something within my job in, in cybersecurity is that, you know, the the worst, the most uncomfortable thing that you have as somebody who specializes in, in cybersecurity within a, a career is, you know, the company that you work for, or that you're working with is breached. And so, you're day in and day out looking for information or artifacts that may indicate that, <laughs> that the, the company's been compromised. And, you know, when you do find it, then that becomes a very uncomfortable situation that you then have to move forward with and, and sort of help address. Right. And it sounds like we're going to be going along the lines of talking more about technology in the form of software than um, hardware. Is that Kind of what I'm get gathering from um, this. We can't. I mean, it, it's like I said, it's so broad. So it we can really broad. <laughs> I know. Um, we can definitely talk about touch on the hardware. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think right now, if we look at from a social justice perspective, I think a lot of it is more on the software side when we're dealing with things like artificial intelligence. We're dealing with social media. We're dealing with um, just yeah, these sorts of things on on a, on a more of a software service side as opposed to you know, what's the latest and greatest Apple iPhone or, or wearable technology or device that you're using. Right. And I guess there's often going to be combinations as well, but they're often not going to exclude software. So for instance, um, there's some incredible technology around self-driving vehicles. Yeah. That's probably going to take away some people's jobs. Uh, it's going to have a social impact, um, but it's that combination of improved hardware and improved software that's creating that, that threat to people's jobs. Uh, and we'll get into whether or not technology is ultimately going to destroy jobs or create jobs in the future. But um, is there anything else before we move on to our next question that you think uh, folks should be aware of in terms of social implications of technology? Um, just be aware. Like, it, it's really, like, it's... Um, it, it is so ubiquitous in our lives that just understanding that, you know, what you consume or taken from technology isn't always always a 100% accurate representation of the actual real world around you. Right. Uh, and that's actually a great intro into my next question, because I, I've looked into some ways that technology is potentially going to impact our society. And I've tried to pick ones that are relevant to our discussion today. There's obviously going to be new technologies that come out in the future that we can't predict. There's the way that technology has previously impacted our society in the past. And I'm not a historian, I don't know about you, but um, you know, maybe we'll be able to touch on that throughout the conversation. But right now, one of the things that's been big in the news is AI, artificial intelligence. And it's advancing at quite an alarming rate. Um, I was watching a video the other day that said ChatGPT4 has achieved, um, I don't even know what the goals were, but a specific goal that they didn't anticipate would happen for 20 years and it ha it's happened already. Um, so I think there's a, a fear that some people have with how quickly AI is progressing. There's also people that don't think AI is going to be a useful tool at all. So there's people sort of on both ends of the spectrum. But when it comes to AI, do you think that it's going to have a positive or a negative impact uh, on our society? And, and how do you see that playing out? I think in the short term, it's going to have a negative impact, um, partially because it's a new it's new and evolving. We haven't quite figured out how best to use it, how best to to make make it work to our advantage. Um, I know that a lot of people have fear around it. There is a justifiable fear for it um, in terms of what we put into it. It then stores and uses for to improve itself. So I know from a 
again, coming from more of a, a business line perspective, a lot of businesses are fearful of it because if you start putting in your corporate secrets or your financial information into it, that becomes stored within the AI system, which it then tries to improve its responses in the future, but it's still keeping all of that old information there. Right. I, I mean, I wonder at the same time if it's almost going to have a leveling effect in some ways. Like, uh, there's been talk about how AI is being used to invest for other people. You give this AI a $100 budget and say, you know, make as much money out of this as you can. Mm -hmm. um, there's even cases of people experimenting with making AI their CEOs yeah. uh, of their companies. But if you, let's say, look at a low-income person who just hasn't been able to figure out how to turn their $100 into something more to live a, a more comfortable life, is it possible that AI could bring them up to the level of, of others who have figured that out without the use of AI? Possibly, um, but it's probably unlikely because really AI in terms of the tool set, if one person is using it for that perspective, other people are going to be using it as well. And so then it sort of almost equalizes that playing field. So you're not using any unique information. So the the people that tend to do really well in terms of investments and things like that are the ones that either get really lucky or have some other insight that maybe somebody else doesn't have and that gives them that advantage. Um, so if you're all using, if, if, there, if one person is using it to specifically to that example, another, you know, potentially hundreds of other people could be doing the same thing, mm -hmm. in which case the potential for return probably is lessened for, for that one person. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the, my, thought process was along the lines of there's going to be outliers who figure out oh. how to outperform AI. Yes. But if you're also an outlier who's sort of been underperforming um, in, in the market, then maybe it's a chance to sort of level the playing field. And obviously that would mean knocking a few people down a peg if they're trying to yeah. do that. And it would also maybe include bringing a few people up a peg in terms of um, financial security, at least. Yeah. And there's probably other ways that AI could be used in uh, a positive way that like you said, we're we're really close to the beginning of, of AI and we don't really know everything that it's going to be used for. Um, but I, I want to, in the context of this conversation, recognize that while technology can be scary and it will certainly have many downsides, there are also going to be some upsides. I mean, I'm sure you don't work in technology because you think it's all evil, right? No, absolutely not. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, none of us can predict sort of what effect AI is going to have. And I think... Um, it's an interesting conversation to think about how, what might happen. Well, and, and it's, I think it's a really, yeah, it's really interesting to see, think about what might happen as well as just how quickly it has happened. I mean, ChatGTP really hit the scene six months ago, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, maybe a little bit less. Um, and we're seeing like rapid adoption of, of artificial intelligence systems. Um, I think in the last... I want to say the last month, maybe it's less than a month, there's been over 200 new products released from every, from every vendor, from Adobe to Microsoft to um, Notion AI, Notion um, notebook, uh, Notebooks. They, they're, they're all taking this AI concept and embedding it into their platforms. And so you're seeing this massive adoption now of AI across all different types of technology. And do you think it's concerning that in this race to, you know, be the best at AI, that um, these... I don't know if you do you call AI a program. Yeah, um, I mean it, it's essentially somebody's written essentially somebody's written software that allows um, a, an application to sort of 
yeah, it's like decision trees and things like that. It's getting kind of a little bit more technical in terms mm -hmm. of the way that the software is written. But yeah, I would consider AI ultimately an application. Right. And do you think in, in releasing this application that in or in doing it so quickly and maybe without completing the work that they wanted to achieve, like I think Google put out their AI sooner than they wanted to in response to Bing doing yeah. that, right? Or Microsoft doing that. Well, and it, it really with AI, um, a big part of AI is training the AI. So you have to you have to feed the AI information for to help it to learn much as you would as a, a child growing up, going through the education system and things like that. So really, the the amount of data that you feed into it is what makes it better. Um, by releasing it to the public, you're sort of improving that learning algorithm because people now are feeding it additional information and it's able to adapt and learn from other data sets that you know you may not have had originally. Right, and I guess this is why Google would have to put it out so quickly because they obviously have a bigger platform than than uh, Bing mm -hmm. for searches, so they probably have more potential to feed it more information. But if Bing gets started earlier, then they're going to be at a, a higher level sooner, yeah. potentially. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> a lot of it. This is really over my head. It, but it's like this. It's essentially it's like a space race. Like it's it's space, right. you know you're the first one to release that product. Um, you know, the USSR was the first one to get get into orbit, but mm -hmm. they weren't the first ones to the moon. So it's you know you, you kind of if you compare the two, like you know ChatGPT ChatGPT was the sort of the first one on the scene with a very cohesive. AI public algorithm that anybody could sign up an account and use it and it worked reasonably well and better than a lot of people expected and so companies like Microsoft and Google probably had AI programs on the go they're like well they're taking away our thunder let's get our market uh, let's get our product onto the market as soon as like right now and and have a response to that so people use our product rather than their product right and i imagine that consolidating these products into one place is also going to be something that happens in the future because um, I, I watched a video where someone asked ai to order them a pizza and it required multiple different ai programs working together to make that happen you had to one have um, the ai recognize what you were saying interpret that figure out you know, what you wanted to order, where to order from. Yeah. And then it had to link it up to a different program that was able to actually verbalize and call the pizza shop to place the order and have it sent to you. So it seems like that's also going to be a big part of this race is how do you combine all of these different programs to work together? And I think that's really accurate in terms of just the modern, um, the modern sort of environment of applications and services. Mm -hmm. um, like our smartphones. Like our smartphones. And, and I think, you know, like, and Uber's another great one. Like, let's talk about Uber. You know, they don't, they, they tend to pull in services. Like, they, they've taken all of these services and put them into one application that, you know, gets a car to your 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 office or wherever you are to pick you up and take you where you want to go. Mm -hmm. um, and same thing with AI. You can get all of these services together, whether it's an AI to recognize your voice, an AI to, you know, send a, a call out to the pizza company to get the pizza that you want. Um, so yeah, like, you know, the next step in evolution for this would be like having companies start to bundle these different AI services together into one and then offer some sort of product to, to the end user. Right. And I guess one of the fears around AI in terms of taking people's jobs, stealing people's ideas is um, that it is pulling from things that humans have done. Uh, and I know myself as an artist, this has come up 
quite a lot where uh, AI will take humans' art, I guess reimagine it in some ways, but keeping styles similar, and then create these images that people who are viewing aren't necessarily going to know if it's created by AI or if it's created by a human. It might be a little bit more obvious these days, but as that technology improves, it's going to become less and less obvious what's created by a computer and what's created by a person. Do you think there's a significant threat posed to certain industries by the creation of AI? Or when it comes to something like art, um, whether it's drawings, music, television, anything along those lines, that having the human input is really what makes it special? I, I think in terms of art, I think having that human input is what makes it special. I do think that there's going to be another shift in terms of art going back to sort of that tangible idea. Like we've kind of, as a society, when it comes to artwork, we've kind of digitized it and processed it and made it highly available to lots of people. Um, I think with AI now being able to just randomly create new iterations of, of art based on people's styles, I think you might go back to that sort of old fashioned medium where, you know, an artist would create a, an oil painting or create something that's like physical representation of their of their of their work um, and that becomes sort of the more desirable than just saying you know having a, a compressed image somewhere on a on a file somewhere a file yeah, system. that's actually a really good point because personally i was in the process of trying to learn how to create digital art when ai this this whole announcement that ai is becoming a big thing came out um and I've just haven't bothered now. I went, well, if AI is going to be taking care of the digital aspect, I'm just going to stay out of it because there's no money to be made. There's no, um, personally, I don't have a lot of interest in digital art, um, but I know some people do, so mm -hmm. they're going to be more affected. But sticking with that hand drawing aspect, I, I find is both meditative as far as like a hobby goes. I just like to draw. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, it seems like there is going to be in the future more value to that physical artistic style yeah and like for me i'm probably the least artistic person <laughs> i really like i i can draw but i'm not very like artistic in terms of my expression and things like that so um coming from my side in terms of what i value when i when i'm appreciating art and that is that more physical tangible sort of object and, and things like that i love buying hand carvings and and uh, oil paintings and things like that right and I mean, imagine that a, a creative idea comes into your head and you're just not quite sure how to express it because you don't have those skills necessarily uh, or even the desire to create art in that way. Do you think for someone like you or, or maybe for others who might find themselves in that position that AI would be a useful tool to be able to get something from your brain out to the world? It, I am. Um... Would I use it? Probably not. Mm -hmm. um, for others, potentially, I could see there being an interest in that. Again, in, I don't necessarily know how the AI would take the inputs that it would need from the from the person. Like you still have to be able to express it in a way that the AI could understand and then develop a sort of comprehensive idea of that of of what you're envisioning artistically. Right. So it's almost a different style of creativity. Yeah, and I've I've heard um, like uh, Marquez Brownlee. I think uh, is probably the, the first example that comes to mind, has talked about how he plans to use AI to help him with his creativity. So whether it's creating a, a video idea, asking AI for input, and then just taking that as sort of a spark 
to to make something else. I, I think there might be some value in that. I think Peter McKinnon's spoken about that as well. Yeah, and I think that's really one area where the AI can really enhance sort of the human experience in terms of augmenting what we already are capable of doing ourselves. Mm-hmm. The other thing, I, I mean, um, I, I want to move on to another topic yeah. as well, but I've also uh, recently been thinking about ways that I can make AI work for me, which is a sort of a strange concept because when it first came out, I was very opposed to this whole concept. <laughs> but then I thought, well, I'm writing these sort of journalistic stories about things that are happening, and you can't rely on AI to be factually accurate necessarily. But if I want to know some, I want to have some data graphed out, and I know it's going to take me an entire day to graph out this data, and I could just ask AI to do it for me, it seems like that might be a useful tool because otherwise I'm just wasting my time trying to do all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, Either that or, or I suppose the alternative, uh, alternative argument would be, well, if you had wanted to do that in the past, you'd have to hire someone to do it or physically put in the effort. And so you're taking work away from someone through doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a fine line because I'm never going to hire someone to do that. So it's just not going to be done if AI doesn't do it. Um, but. I mean, I suppose anyone could make that argument, right? Yeah, and I guess the other thing, too, is if you feed that information to AI, are you able to confirm what you're receiving out is actually accurate to what it should be generating? Because mm-hmm. there is still a level of knowledge that's needed to sort of fact-check and verify that what what you're getting as output is, you know, it matches what the, what, what matches the input that was given. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point because I would never want to release something without having fact check it. So for me personally, I'd have to do that. But I know that that's not going to be everyone's opinion. Yeah. Some people are going to say, well, AI was right about this one thing and therefore AI is right about everything. And my dad works as a professor. He's already had students submitting essays written by chat GPT. So yeah. um, I, I know that it can also go really sideways yes. if, if we're not careful. Yeah. Um, but to move on from that into something that's, I guess, somewhat similar is uh, deep fakes yes. is another thing that's been in the news recently. So uh, the concept is that you replace one person's likeness with another person's likeness. And it seems like this has great potential to be used in very nefarious ways. And it has been already. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what the positive aspects are. Maybe, maybe you, you can see some. But um, if you imagine like... I've seen deep fakes of President Biden, for instance. It's incredibly important for a, um, a leader of a nation to be able to address the nation. But what happens if they're, the person or the the address to the nation is not actually the leader? It's someone pretending to be. I think there's a great potential for harm when it comes to that. And like you said, it, it's already happened in some instances. So where do you see deep fakes going and, and how do we protect ourselves against that? I honestly don't can't think of a good way to protect against it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, the benefit that's been that exists right now and it's slowly fading away is that it's very resource intensive to actually create them. Um, at the same time, there's sort of a uncanny value when it comes to them. So when you watch a deep fake video, there's usually little indicators of artifacting and things like that that just make it not look Quite real. Quite real, mm-hmm. um, which has helped, but I think those obstacles are slowly fading away as the technology improves. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really it's a it is a huge impact from a social perspective in terms of how can we 
prevent this. Um, I'm hearing stories of deep fakes um, in terms of revenge porn. Right. Um, which is or celebrity porn. A celebrity porn. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, that, that is extremely personal, extremely problematic for the individuals that are targeted by these types of deep fakes. Um, even more so than say somebody like uh, you, you, the example you gave with, with President Biden or our, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, like, mm-hmm. you know, at least in those situations, they're government organ, they're government entities and elected officials, and there is some level of, protection to that sort of content in terms of like the government would be able to respond to that but when it comes to um, a deep fake revenge porn situation all of a sudden it becomes very difficult for an individual to defend themselves against that right and we don't uh, our laws haven't kept up with the technology um no you know that's been true throughout the 90s and 2000s and it's more so as technology continues to increase at a rapid pace we're not going to be able to keep up with yeah with all these changes um I've also had an instant uh, where I, I joined a, a soccer league. Someone tried to have me kicked out of the soccer league by photoshopping text messages. So they, they photoshopped messages that they claimed had come from me, sent them off to the league organizer, and they were super racist. Yeah. Um, and they were trying to paint me as being some racist person that needed to be kicked out of the league. And it was sort of my word against theirs. And luckily, I knew the league organizer, and so they immediately knew that something didn't sound right and wanted to look into it. When they did look into it, they were able to confirm that that had been photoshopped. Um, they had some, I don't know what, what uh, you put an image through to be able to tell some sort of technology. Yeah, there, there's always artifacting and, and things like that, especially on images, because they go through compression algorithms and that when, when they get saved. And so it becomes obvious if a, if a screenshot has been altered or if it was created outside of a, of a phone. Right. And I guess the same would apply for, for deep fakes as well, right? In a level, yeah, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, most of the time you don't have that level of access to the, to the file itself. Most of the time with these deep fakes, they get posted into like a, a Twitter thread or into, a, you know, YouTube or something like that, where a lot of the original details of the video that was uploaded are, are lost. So. Right. And I guess it's also going to be one of those instances where sure, the right person would be able to confirm that this is fake, but the average person who's seeing it isn't going to be able to. And it happens all the time with, with newspaper articles, for instance. They put out a lie, and then they retract it later, but not very many people read the retraction. So yeah. people still well, end up the, believing the lie. The, the, the story goes on the front page, and then the retraction goes on to, what, page four or five? <laughs> right, exactly. So... Um, yeah, it, it sounds like there's not really any good solutions for addressing this. No, and I and I think that that sort of touches on a really important part in terms of social justice and technology is is really our our governments, our legal systems, our 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 laws are falling behind in terms of the technical the speed at which technolo- technology is advancing, and they haven't been able to keep up. They're they're trying to use laws that were written many many decades ago to fit within the current technology existence as it is today and it's, it's really failing and it also hurts and impacts law enforcement when they try to do an investigation because ultimately when it comes to following up on something like a cyber crime it has to go to the police first the police have to investigate they then have to pass that to to crown and have it go to court and i think the the amount of resources that are available just to do investigations aren't even a- adequate either right it almost seems like the only way our laws are going to keep up with technologies if you have AI writing the laws, <laughs> well, <and> that, <laughs> which is then a huge concern. Too. And, and there was a situation, I think, um, a few months ago, they, there was a lawyer that was trying to see if he could get AI 
I get remember this, into yeah. this like the Supreme Court of, this, of the United States or something like that, and mm-hmm. and have the AI argue for it. And I mean, there's a there's a, so many moral and ethical issues with you you know again with using AI in, in certain circumstances. Again, you know, do we really want AI writing laws? I mean, <laughs> well, because it's going to be based off of our history, yeah, and we haven't necessarily had a history of good laws. Yes, so. Hmm. Yeah. Quite. Quite the concept. I even saw a, a TikTok yesterday of someone who said, um, "I asked my lawyer and I asked AI the same question, and they both came back with the same answer. So I fired my lawyer." <laughs> I went, "Well, that's that's a move. I don't know if that's a good move." But. <laughs> and, well, and it goes to the again society technology spread of misinformation with social media and and you see this rise of uh, sovereign citizens freemen on the land um they make all of these there was a, a recent uh case i think it was just this week in prince george with uh, an individual getting sentenced to one year for um contempt of court and again having that sort of sovereign citizen where they feel that the laws don't uh, the laws of canada don't apply to them they're not you know, they're not beholden to the justice system or anything like that. And so they make these wild, outrageous claims within court and they tie up the court's time with all of these arguments and, and filings and things like that. And it, it all really sparks from social media. It comes, you know, it allows them to get into those, as I mentioned earlier, the echo chambers where they, they connect with these other sovereign citizens, freedom, free men on the land sort of type personalities, um, which also ties into anti-vaxxers and the convoy and like that just whole that whole section of society kind of all falls into that right you find your echo chamber and then you just can't get back out of it again yeah mm-hmm. um robots <laughs> <laughs> i i don't think this is a, a topic that we're necessarily going to be able to talk about with a huge amount of understanding i mean i don't maybe you do have experience with robots but that's often the center of these sort of dystopian movies that we see is technology's gone sideways, robots have taken over the world, we're all screwed. Um, do you think that that's a reality? Are there enough checks and balances when it comes to people creating hardware and software, putting them into robots that we're going to be able to avoid those types of situations? Or is that like a genuine fear that that we should have? <sighs> The problem with robotics is it's extremely hard to be successful in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount, because now you're not only dealing with the software and the programming, you're also dealing with um, engineering and different levels of engineering, um, electrical engineering, um, mechanical engineering, because obviously the robots have to be able to move. Um, is it Boston Dynamics? Is that the... The one that has the dog that... Yes. Yeah. When they don't, they don't just have a dog. There's other, there's other robotics that they do too. Yeah. Um, they're probably the most advanced that I've seen um at least publicly um and the robots are only good at doing one or two things it's it's mm-hmm. not they're not a general duty general responsibility they you know they can teach them to like jump over obstacles and and navigate navigate through that obstacle course and sort of thing but it's it's not going to be able to like fix your car it's not going to be able to build a house right and a part of that is that the human form is not necessarily the best form for most things. Like we're good at doing a lot of different things, but we're not specifically suited for one task. We're we're very good at general, general, general mechanics and stuff like that. Like, right. So, but it's curious because then you have companies like Tesla that talk about wanting to make humanoid robots. Mm -hmm. And have they? 
I, I, I mean, I don't know. If, I haven't <laughs> I, I seen anything. I haven't seen anything yet either. Um, so based on how their Cybertruck launch went, I don't know how a humanoid robot launch would go. But um, what they've been talking about is the fact that they're actually not a car company. They're, they're a, a robotics com- oh, company. Robotics. Whereas, I was thinking software company. I th- yeah, actually, I think you're right. I think they said they're a software company, but um, it ties into the concept of robotics because they consider their cars to be robots. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the software that they use in their cars, in theory, according to them, could also be applied to humanoid robots. That ability to navigate around streets would also potentially allow for a robot to navigate around sidewalks. And because they've already gathered a lot of information from their cars driving around the streets, they'd be able to put that into these humanoid robots. Um, and it seems like that could really just s- start to snowball in some ways, right? Like, where where does that end? What happens if someone makes a humanoid robot that's, you know, <laughs> 10 stories high and, and, you know, is designed to squash people as it walks? Like... You know, I think that's kind of what people fear, right? But again, it gets into that challenge of of the different levels, that, the different aspects of engineering needed to do robotics. So, like, right. software engineering is one thing. And then, you know, te- Tesla's done really well in terms of um, their automation. Um, not that I would really want to get into a self-driving car from them, but they're, yeah. they're doing better than some uh, some other companies. I know Ford and um, GM, I think, are slowly starting to catch up a little bit in terms of what they're autonomous uh, cars are capable of mm-hmm. but um, again like building a car versus building a robot is very different in terms of you know power source the different you know motors needed um, Tesla very much likes to throw one big motor or a couple of large motors into their cars to drive the wheels you know for I think with like a Boston Dynamics type robot you're dealing with hundreds of motors and actuators and right. the complexity goes through the roof yeah I mean people often wouldn't think it because they don't necessarily understand cars, but cars are relatively simple yeah. to operate. They've been around for ages. And really all that's happened with the introduction of EVs is we've replaced the power source, yeah. right? Um, so uh, yeah, I think there, there's a long way to go before we ever get to that point. And we've been using robotics for uh, decades, um, mostly in like a factory sort of setting where we have robotics on the, on the assembly, assembly line right. doing a single job of, you know, taking a wheel, putting it on the hub or something like that. I don't, I don't know exactly what they do, but, um, and within, um, electronics manufacturing. So a lot of the chip manufacturing, those are done in clean rooms with just robots, uh, creating the, the chip assemblies and things like that. So, right. and yeah, I mean, as far as technology taking over people's jobs, that's an example of technology has already taken over some people's jobs. There's no longer a ton of humans lined up on an assembly line doing all of this. There's a few humans and then these yeah. robotic arms that are doing things, or there's now self-checkouts at uh, grocery stores. So, um, I mean, as technology increases exponentially, I imagine those shifts are going to happen at a much higher rate as well. But um, important to note that it's already happening. It's yeah. not like something that's destined for us in the future. Only. Yeah. I want to talk about the book 1984. Have you read it? <laughs> I have not. Guilt- okay. Guiltily, I have not, and also the year that I was born. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I had actually hadn't read it until a few years ago. Okay. Um, but what I found quite curious is that it's it's all about this sort of government monitoring of people, controlling of people through that monitoring process. There would be like a television in someone's home, the television's watching someone. And if that person does anything the government doesn't like, 
well, it immediately notifies the government and they're going to get in trouble. So people just live in this state of fear that anything that they do that is considered to be immoral in some way, um, they're going to get punished for it. A very simplified version, and, and that's not everything that the book's about, but I wanted to focus on that particular aspect because we already live in a world where cameras surround us. And I don't know what ability the government has to hack into that and monitor everyone, but we have seen it in some countries, like um, in China, for instance. They monitor their population quite heavily with cameras, and um, they do enforce um, certain laws through those means. So that I personally think is, is a very real fear that we should have. Um, we've already seen people putting pieces of tape over their yeah. um, cameras on their laptops, not necessarily because of government overreach, but just anyone might yeah. hack in and start watching you. Uh, is that something that you're concerned about? Yeah. I mean, it goes to sort of the privacy that <clears throat> the privacy challenges that technology creates for us. Um, you know, I've got a, an Alexa in my home. It's in the kitchen. It's not in the bedroom. <laughs> um, and yeah, like that, that device, it's got a microphone. It's listening all the time. Um, you know, we've got smart TVs in our, in our living rooms. We've got, um, yeah, we're, we're basically bringing this technology in and it's able to listen to us. It's able to, to monitor us, track us. I mean, I'm wearing a, a, an Apple watch that's constantly monitoring my vital signs for my heart rate and, and my steps and everything like that. Um, and that's all being fed up to cloud resources, whether it's Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft. Um, and so those are all being sort of centrally stored. And tracked as and, well, right? Like your phone will often say, um, do you want this app to track what you're doing? Yeah. Previously, it didn't do that. It just automatically would yeah. track you. And yeah, and so then it becomes a question of who's who's looking at that information. That's where the privacy impact is. Is it, is somebody looking at it, at that information and making decisions on my behaviors or my habits that mm -hmm. are are influencing things? Um, and I guess nowadays it doesn't have to be a person. It can also be an artificial intelligence, right? So it it could really speed through all that yeah. information. And yeah. And I think, yeah, like with 1984 as the example in terms of a government entity, you know, looking at that information, collecting that information, you know, the biggest challenge is, is scale. So it's, you know, if, if you've got, if you're monitoring people, like even within a corporate setting, if you're monitoring your users, somebody has to go look at that monitoring. They have to go and make a conscious decision to go and look at it. Well, if I can go and put AI in there to watch to see what my users are doing, the AI is able to work nonstop without without rest. So right, I mean, we hear about uh, how the government can monitor your texts. I think um, there, there's requirements around when they're able to or not. Yeah. But uh, I think it's within a certain radius uh, of an incident or, or something along those lines. So you could potentially be caught up in this net that they're putting out there for for another individual. But when you talk about a human going through it there's a pretty slim chance that a human's going to find your naked picture that you sent to your partner, right? Yeah. Um, but if an AI is trained to recognize when it sees a naked picture and it just goes through everyone's, then it can just pull all of those out pretty easily. It would well, seem, and there's right? a, there's a law, I feel like it was in the U S that they're looking at. And it's, it was originally targeted around like, um, child exploitation, child sexual abuse materials, things like that. And the whole point of it was to monitor people's photos. I think it was Apple was pushing through it as well, is to monitor photos for inappropriate pictures. And 
you know, how accurate is that AI? Is it going to flag a picture of a, an adult who is consensually taking a picture of themselves in the, in the nude and have that picture then forwarded to law enforcement, breaching that privacy of that individual? Cause, right, because how would AI know the age of someone yeah. from their picture? Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's really the topic of the day. It's, it it's is. so, um, AI is so much the focus for everybody right now, um, the potential for what we could do with it, but also potentially what's currently being used for. Like um, AI and cybersecurity right now is really hot too because the AI is actually able to create exploits. Mm. So there was a, you know, you could go into the chat GPT and say, okay, give me an exploit to exploit this vulnerability and it would spit it out. So uh, excuse my ignorance. I'm not entirely sure what an exploit means. So an exploit is basically um, a method of, so within cybersecurity, um, there's vulnerabilities within systems. So a vulnerability can be uh, software being developed by a, by a company. The, the developer forgets to check a parameter. That parameter then becomes exploitable. And so, but the way that you exploit it varies depending on how the application is developed and how it's using the memory of the computer. And so it gets very technical in terms of actually taking advantage of a vulnerability to create the exploit. But okay. if I give the AI saying, hey, there is a, here is a vulnerability that was found. Um, usually um, vulnerability reports are provide very technical details as to how that vulnerability exists. Mm -hmm. the, the AI can then take that and actually create the exploit Sounds like an abusive partner, just <laughs> exploiting your vulnerabilities. And yeah, and and then um, so that's that that's actually made it very easy for somebody who, with a threat actor. I don't like the term hacker, but a threat actor, somebody that wants to take advantage of that vulnerability and exploit it and and breach, you know, break into a, an organization through the software, can then just create that exploit rather easily. Whereas before, you'd have to really sit down and like type potentially hundreds of lines of code to 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 um to properly create an exploit right and and that's a term i hadn't heard before threat actors so mm -hmm. um can you just briefly explain why you use threat actor as opposed to hacker <sighs> oh, <boy>. <laughs> <laughs> is it not a brief thing yeah, it's not a, it's not a brief thing <laughs> oh, but okay <laughs> I, I can make it brief um so the idea with hackers is like i would consider myself a hacker i like to uh, it's somebody that wants to understand how something works. So you, you know, when I started off um, in sort of my technology uh, pathway, when I was probably like 10 years old, I take my parents computer, uh, IBM PC, um, and I would poke around in the Windows operating system, or I'd poke around in DOS or in the BIOS or in the hardware, and I'd more than often break something and then have to try to fix it. Um, so that's sort of the, the true definition of a hacker is somebody that seeks knowledge through learning how things work. Mm -hmm. And so the, the term hacker was adopted by the media um, at some point, I don't know when in the history of things, but it was, it, they took it on as somebody with malicious intent. Like, okay. And it really became, it, it came about partially because the hacker in the traditional sense in terms of wanting to know how things break we're also learning how to break into systems, not necessarily for profit or for, um, or for malicious reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, but the media took that term and made hack, a hacker a bad word. Right. Um, and so 
my point of view is I'm a hacker. I don't really want to get people confused with what a hacker is. And so when I talk about people that are wanting to maliciously break into the computer systems, I use the term threat threat actor. So a threat actor could be an individual. It could be a group of people. It could be a nation state. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a huge thing right now with um, Russia and China and North Korea um, attacking systems uh, here in Canada, North America. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the why I use the, the term threat actor. Okay, yeah, I think that's a really important distinction to make. It's um, you know maybe a hacker, but with malicious intent, as yeah. opposed to a hacker who's acting for the the greater good of, yeah. of some sort. Um, I think I don't know if you've ever watched Criminal Minds, but Penelope Garcia strikes me as yeah. um, someone who sort of falls into that category where um, she was considered a hacker by the FBI and. and um, they went after her for, for, I guess, malicious intent, perhaps. Um, but then because they found those skills to be quite useful, they brought her in to, to do theoretically good work. For and, them. and that's what's happened is there's a lot of people high up in executive roles now um, within organizations um, that started off, you know, as either career, either career criminal hackers or people that were you know, hacking just for the fun of it to try and see how, how they could break into a system or how a system was used and they could, you know, take, take an, uh, take a vulnerability and exploit it. And, um, yeah, so it it is very common within the sort of cybersecurity spaces. There's people that have criminal records, Mm -hmm. you know, protecting your information and keep your enemies close. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it, I think it takes one to know one. Like Mm -hmm. it's kind of like you have that mindset of, okay, if I was to want to, take advantage of a of an organization and break in how would i do it mm-hmm. yeah so. absolutely i can definitely understand why that would be the case do you think that technology will eventually take over more jobs than it creates and if so how do humans continue to live comfortably to earn an income if if technology has taken over these jobs so i don't think it's going to take away more jobs than it creates um what what we've seen historically and what I think we'll continue to see is a shift from the labor-based workforce into more of a knowledge-based workforce. So, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, my grandfather's generation, you know, he was born in the, the mid-1920s. And so, like, that was that was a, a time when people were going from working on the farms to working in factories, um, you know, Ford, Ford Motor Company, things like that, working on the assembly line. And those jobs have all kind of disappeared. You know, there isn't the, there isn't that level of of labor needed in terms of like assembling things on an assembly line that's all been taken over by technology by robots however there's still a lot of jobs in terms of um, the knowledge based workforce so like not necessarily putting t- things together but maintaining those robots maintaining the software maintaining the the engineering and the electrical and, and the things that need in, that are needed in order to keep that production moving forward. Right. And I guess the oversight as well, we're going to need people to provide some level of empathy uh, mm-hmm. where technology may not have that. I yeah. don't know if AI is going to be able to learn how to be empathetic, but um, that's what I've heard in, in my research for this podcast is that the jobs that are going to get created by AI, for instance, are going to be ones where uh, they require empathy. Uh, and I'm hoping that as a social justice ambassador, that type of work is going to be uh, something that'll be difficult to be replaced by technology. 
I guess it's, it's always hard to tell what's well, going to be replaced and what isn't. Well, and it's interesting to you bring up empathy because really within IT, there has been a lack of empathy from IT specialists and IT, the people that work within IT is we always view the, the users as like, oh, they're dumb, ignorant, like Luddites, like that just don't get technology. And mm-hmm. really there has, there's, there's still the odd person that has that sort of view thing, uh, that view of, of their users and things like that. But really the more modern shift within the IT space is the empathy for the users. Like not, you know, a user may or may not understand the low level technical details. And so having that empathy to explain to them, you know, why is it important to do use this application and not this other application or why do we do things tech- with technology this way and not another way? And Yeah, I think that's why Apple's been so uh, popular. Is, uh, when I was growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, I always used an Apple computer, but it, they weren't popular at the time. It wasn't the thing to have the yeah. way it is now. And the argument was usually, it's too simple. Uh, and I went, but that's what I want. <laughs> like I, I've never been, I, I've always liked tech. But I've never been someone who, like you, would go into the back end and, and try to figure things out. Yeah. Um, so for me, to have a machine that makes that possible was unnecessary. It just made my life more complicated. What I wanted was simplicity. <laughs> and it seems like that's growing in popularity because nowadays everyone wants to be on the – or not everyone, but a lot of people want to be on the Apple ecosystem because – all of their pieces of technology work so seamlessly together. It just makes the user experience simplified and easier. So um, I'm glad to hear that from a, a technology standpoint, there's also that recognition that uh, there needs to be some level of empathy there. Yeah, and and with technology, people people that aren't tech savvy, they just they want it to work. That's the thing is they want mm-hmm. they want to take that device that they have. They just want to turn it on. They want to start using it. It's it's when things don't work that. IT becomes more apparent in terms of support and things like that. Like having to deal with support, it's usually the only time you call technical support is when things aren't working as you expect them to. It's And it's also important to understand when people will understand you. Yeah. Like my dad, for instance, would always have a super hard time dealing with um, people in IT typically because he'd go in with a problem with his computer and say, please fix this for me. And they would respond with, in his mind, gibberish. Like, he doesn't know what they're yeah. talking about, right? Um, he's he's going. I please just explain this in in lay people terms yeah. so that I can understand what it is that you're trying to say. And I I think that's getting better. People in IT are, are kind of going. Oh, okay, we have to figure out how to explain this to people in the way that they're going to understand. Otherwise, we're not going to solve the yeah, problem. Yeah, and, and I've and I've seen that in my career, in, you know, through management and stuff like that, as hiring people is. I hire my support technicians more on customer service than I do on technical ability. I can right. train technical ability. I can teach you how to, you know, go through the documentation that we have on our systems to solve the technical problems. But what I need is I need somebody that can actually engage with the user who is in, in essence a customer of our IT department, even though they're the same organization, um, and help them, you know, get through their issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, customer support is is huge. Um, every industry I've ever worked in, that's been my number one priority, and and I think it it makes you successful if if the people that you're interacting with actually appreciate the way you're interacting with them. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to just being knowledgeable, 
Um, and, and that's going to be interesting too, as technology takes over people's jobs is, is that technology going to be interact, able to interact with people in a way that they can appreciate and understand as opposed to just here's a bunch of information you don't actually know what to do with. Yeah. You've been working or you've worked in cybersecurity. You work in IT now. I work in cybersecurity. I worked in IT before and I used to oh, do something. Oh, my bad. <laughs> yeah. Got it reversed. Oh. So you work in cybersecurity now. You used to work in IT. Uh, has your experience working in cybersecurity given you the impression that society is capable of handling threats that are posed by society or by technology? No, but and I think that goes back to the conversation we had, had earlier about our government and justice and legal systems not mm -hmm. being not able to keep up with the evolution of technology, right. you know, occurring so rapidly. So Right now, the, the big thing within a cyber threat sort of landscape is ransomware. You know, mm. uh, you know, it, it's become so prevalent. It's, it's one of the biggest things. And you're seeing, um, lots of organizations recently being hit hard with it. Um, Sobeys, uh, Chapters Indigo was hit recently. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, uh, the Children's Hospital in Ontario, Toronto was hit too. Mm -hmm. Um, and and so these sorts of events happen, and as an organization, they're responding to it as quickly as they can. But in terms of, and these are the big sort of the the big ones that you know it's very visible because obviously, like um, with Sobeys, they I think their their gift card system went down, so you couldn't use their gift cards in their stores or uh, something like that. And then with Indigo, their entire website was down. You couldn't order a book. I don't know if you still can order a book online right now from them. Oh, wow. Um, and then with the children's hospital, I, I think they stopped doing, um, uh, they stopped doing like intakes and uh, patient intakes and stuff like that. They had to like divert people wow. from coming in because they couldn't process the patient information. And that's incredibly dangerous if you can't process people into hospitals. Yeah. Um, and then you also hear about threats like, uh, or benefits potentially too, but um, quantum computing is is now growing. Um, and we're not anywhere near the point where it's going to be able to break codes um, that have been created to protect our information, mm -hmm. but it has the possibility to get there. Yeah. So is that also something that we have to be concerned about? Or do you think that in addition to being able to bypass certain uh, security systems that have been put in place, it can also create security systems to prevent that from happening. Well, and I think, so with with the quantum computing, I mean, to understand how security works currently is, is based on mathematics, and it's based on mathematics of extremely large, complex numbers, um, which we as humans can't do manually. Um, and computers can do it, but they do it very slowly. And so the idea with quantum mechan uh, quantum computing is that it can do these things very fast and therefore break our, our current security encryption. Um, the problem is, is that quantum computing, just like quantum mechanics and quantum uh, uh, physics, it's not easy. Um, and it's extremely complex. And in terms of actually getting to a quantum computer that sort of general is able to do general computing like we, the my understanding right now with quantum computing is it's very specific it's able to do a couple of things really well really fast yeah. but in terms of like general computing which is what we would need in order for quantum computing to have a huge impact on our on us as a society and as um and within technology it, it's still quite uh, a ways away i don't think they're going to get there anytime soon yeah i i heard that it's capable of um or it needs to be something like 
thousands of times better than it is right now yeah. before it would get to that point. But one of the interesting analogies I heard about quantum computing is that it's not like you've taken a car and made it faster. It's like you've created a boat when in the past you only had a car. It's sort of intended to be used for something completely different. It shouldn't be viewed as just an improvement on your regular yeah. computer. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it be, it's almost a reimagining of the computer. Yeah, I think I guess the car to a boat would be a great analogy. Um, but I think the problem is is that we still haven't figured out buoyancy, <laughs> right? And that in that in that sort of analogy in terms of building a boat, like we can we can build the the quantum computer, we can build the boat, but it doesn't float. <laughs> right. Or we're in like a tiny dinghy, but, yeah. you know, eventually we need to get to a submarine that can kind of yeah. do both or something along those lines. Yeah. I thought it was an interesting analogy and, and it still goes way over my head, but... Um, <laughs> it goes over mine too, my mathematics. Like I've got somewhat reasonable, but yeah, like you get into some of the quantum and even some of the more advanced cryptological stuff, like I can understand it on a, on a um, certain level, but definitely not in terms of like deep level. Right. And I mean, that that's the problem with doing a, an entire podcast on t technology is, um, you know, no one's going to be an expert in absolutely every aspect of technology. But, um, yeah. you know, I, I really appreciate you being able to provide your expertise based on the understanding that you do have, which is obviously far greater than my understanding <laughs> of technology. And speaking of your, your past work in IT, which uh, in my experience, IT is often about sort of interacting with people who don't generally have a great understanding of what technology is, how it works. Um, can you shed some light on how humans interact with technology and the social implications that this behavior might have? Seems a little general. So, so like, so, I mean, I, <laughs> I would, I would make it less general if I had a better understanding of yeah. sort of your day-to-day -day interactions, but just in general, um, have you noticed any behavior in terms of how humans interact with technology that you think is either positive or concerning as we enter an era where technology is becoming more and more prevalent and advancing at a very high rate? Well, I think with people um, interacting with technology, it's always transactional. There's always something that the person wants to get out of the technology as to why they start using it. So... Um, uh, you know, social media. You're looking for you're looking for engagement with other people. You're looking for that that aspect of our you know human nature to be social and to interact with people. And social media gives us that interaction from afar and with a, a much larger audience than we would traditionally have in our in our normal historical social circles. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, um, video gaming and things like that. That's that all ties back into again with you know, social, you know, at least if you're online gaming, if you're doing local, local, whatever, you know, sort of not internet connected gaming, then obviously you're just doing it on yourself. You're looking for an escape um, for one reason or another. Um, in terms of uh, negativity on those interactions, uh, I would say like if they're, mindlessly doing it like if, if you're if, if it's taking away from your ability to productively go about your day um as a person like you know if you're if you're starting to to lose some of your normal functional capability then that would probably be a huge detriment right so the concept of technology like stripping people of their humanity almost yeah um and i think 
we've already really seen that uh, in the last decade as uh, social media has really exploded, or I guess it's been more than a decade now, but um, people are now interacting in very different ways than they did before the introduction of social media. Yeah. We have huge amounts of people that we consider our friends. We have um, interactions with people online as opposed to in person. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really is changing the way that we interact the, with the world, not necessarily for the negative, but not necessarily for the positive either. And if you're not aware of how it's impacting you mm-hmm. and whether it's happening in a way that you're okay with, um, from an ethical standpoint, then I, I could see that being a, a problem. Well, and I, and I think again, with this, I mean, social media is so easy to harp on, yeah. <laughs> harp on, um, in terms of like negative impact again, psychologically, like if you, you know, the way certain, certain news gets promoted in social media and, and how that affects you. I mean, being a trans woman, you know, in Canada, we're safe, we're protected. However, the amount of negativity coming from other parts of the world, whether it's from the United Kingdom or from the southern, you know, the southern states or a larger portion of the United States now, currently, um, you know, that starts to eat away at you. And so unless you're able to escape from that and sort of go back to your, your localized social circles or your local community, um, if you get lost in that cycle, it's going to have a huge psychological impact. Absolutely. Uh, I was, I had J.K. Rowling threaten to sue me a few years yeah, I ago. Remember that. <laughs> and, uh, it really did have a huge toll on my mental health because it wasn't so much that I lost faith in, in who I was as a person or that, or that I, um, let those comments make me believe that what those people were saying was true, but it was just the constant nature of it. The fact that I was being hounded for, I mean, certainly months, but, but it went on for years in, in mm-hmm. sort of a reduced format where I'm just getting constant hate messages and it has a massively detrimental, uh, or it did on, uh, have a massively detrimental effect on my mental health. But I think for the general public, it can also have a really detrimental impact on your mental health because you take Instagram as an example and people are always projecting this very yes. perfect image of their lives. And you're also getting not just one person's perfect image of their life, you're getting multiple people's. And so you're comparing your life, your actual life to multiple people's sort of um, perfected image. And comparing yourself against that means that you're never going to live up to what you think you should live up to. Um, I try, Instagram's difficult because it's, it's mostly just for pictures yeah. now for videos. Um, but when I'm engaging on other social media platforms where I'm actually writing down how I'm feeling and presenting my life in that way, I try to be very um, realistic and talking about, I have struggles with mental health. Um, I have body image issues, I, whatever it is. Um, and putting that out to the public. So at least when people are reading through my accomplishments, they're going to get a dose of reality with it at the yeah. same time. But I don't think that that's how most people interact with social media because most people don't want to be vulnerable in that way. Well, and, it, and it's a really great example too, because I, you know, I post pictures of, uh, on social media as well. And I recently went on a vacation to Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. um, last week or a week or two ago. And, um, you know, I posted pictures of Peggy's Cove and Lunenburg and Halifax and all the different places that we kind of visited. But, you know, one area that I didn't post was the 12 hours that I spent in Pearson because my flight got 
delayed mm-hmm. and like me sleeping on the floor of the, of the airport. So, you know, that those things don't make it onto social media. So yeah, you don't get the full picture of somebody's life. You get the through, glamorous you version. Get the, you get the glamorous <laughs> version. Yeah. Right. And then you also have that aspect of, um, I, I went on a trip when I was in my early twenties to, uh, Europe and I posted pictures every day. It was the first time I'd been traveling on my own. First time I'd gone to Europe since I was, I think, three. So it's the first memories that I was creating of this type of experience. And I wanted to share it. So I was posting every single day pictures of my trip on social media. And I had people unfollow me because of it. And it was, you know, they either were comparing themselves to to this lifestyle that I was living for that period of time and thinking, well, I, you know, that's making me feel bad. So I just don't want to see it anymore. There's other people that are saying, well, I don't want to see it because it reminds me that I can't afford to do that. Um, so there's all sorts of reasons why um, people are going to have to protect themselves from yeah. things like that. Um, but it becomes increasingly more difficult as social media becomes more and more popular with, with yeah. people. Yeah, and then another great sort of detriment too, uh, to the general population is, um, you know, I've got, I'm, a, I'm a mother, I've got two kids. Um, uh, my son at the start of the pandemic was still in daycare and then was starting kindergarten shortly after i think it was the first sort of reopening of the schools after they had been shut down mm-hmm. um he started going into kindergarten but like you know the the detriment of like being disconnected from their friends being unable to socialize on a you know children socialize through school that is their social environment and all mm-hmm. of a sudden they didn't have that and and so as a parent you're trying to schedule play dates with their friends but then some parents had different you know, profiles in terms of what they had acceptable risk in terms of, of the, of the, you know, the risk of the, of catching COVID and the pandemic and stuff like that. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really does create that disconnect when your entire life is happening via computer as opposed to one-on-one connection. It's sort of difficult to say if technology is ultimately going to be, you know, the downfall of society (laughs) or if it's going to be um, this means for fueling social justice advocacy, which we know it can be. On one hand, it could be sort of this, this, uh, great way of, of fueling positive change. It could also be a venue for fueling negative change, right? There's so much hate on social media in addition to it being an avenue for fueling social justice, for instance. Do you think that technological advancement in general is going to be a, a net positive or a net negative? I think it's going to be a net positive. I mean, we're seeing, you know, I think about my my life so far in terms of internet adoption and, you know, being being a fairly early adopter of the internet and then seeing sort of the evolution of the the message boards to the to the forums to chat to um to obviously social media as it stands today. Um I think the ability for people to come together and have a common interest and a common goal and to sort of build up that sort of support network and and take action in a positive way i think is probably going to be more powerful than the negative right is there anything before i get to my last question that we haven't talked about that you think would be really important for our audience to know oh it's a very broad topic. It is so a very broad topic. Go any direction, I mean, but. <laughs> I think just overall security posture for for people, like make sure you're using complex passwords. And I know it's hard to memorize passwords, but use a password manager. Um, that they're they're out there. That way, you only have to remember one password. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, use multi-factor authentication, things like that. Like just practice good sort of 
techno technological hygiene in terms of like you know protecting yourself because yeah the last thing you want to do is is you know lose your lose your social media access to a hacker or, or not to a hacker to a threat actor um yeah or just lose access to any sorts of accounts and things like that so right and i mean your answer might be the same to my final question as well but what can our listeners do to help? This is sort of a question that we like to end all of our podcasts on. If there's people that want to advocate for um, some sort of societal improvement, it's, it's a harder one to answer when it comes to technology. But um, do you have some thoughts about what our listeners can do to help when it comes to addressing technology through the lens of social justice? Um, I think just being a good sort of um, online uh, citizen, like, you know, there is a lot of negativity, as we know, a lot of trolling, things like that on, on, on the internet and on social media and in within technology in general. Be positive and, and you know, call out behavior that, you know, there's a lot of behavior that I see online that just people would not accept if it was done in person, in person but mm -hmm. yet the, it, it, they let it slide online. And so I think... There's that know, anonymity? Yeah, that anonymity. And I think that's a huge part of it. Um, not that I want to necessarily lose my privacy of, of being anonymous, anonymous online, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think, you know, for people to sort of just, you know, take a step back when you're online, realize if you're seeing a conversation going a certain way, or if you're seeing a person behaving in a certain way, you know, try to address it. I mean, obviously I don't want to get in, don't get, get, don't get into online arguments. It's mm -hmm. doesn't really get anywhere and you just, end up you probably end up hurting your own your own mental health so right and i guess recognizing that even when you are acting online in an anonymous fashion you still want to act according to your principles your ethics yeah. your values and hopefully those are good yeah mm -hmm. yeah be a good person <laughs> yeah yeah exactly not everyone will but uh, no that's always good advice be a good no. person and yeah it's that it's it's so hard. I mean again with technology as it is it's so broad, um, yeah the best advice is just to to be aware be conscious of you know what you're putting online where you're going online what you're doing mm -hmm. just be attentive. Wonderful. Well, All thank right. you so much for joining me on yeah, the podcast. Yeah, thanks today. for having me. Yeah, this has been a really interesting discussion. Um, very different from most of our podcast <laughs> episodes, but um, I've really appreciated it. Yeah. And this has been a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Berling. I've been joined today by Elizabeth Beacom uh, to discuss technology, and I'll see you again in the next one. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.